I see coaching as a art form and it's the science gives you the, the tools that you need. But just like we found out, you tie two strings together and you pluck it, it reverberates and it makes a noise. It doesn't mean you can play Little Wing on the guitar. So we know what physiology looks like, what blood flow looks like, what muscle function looks like. But taking that and putting it into a program for a human being to me is an art form. And that is an infinite pursuit. That's Michael Olzinski. And this is episode 101 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and every week on this show, I sit down with athletes, coaches, and personalities in the sport of running for long-form conversations that will educate you, inspire you, or impact you in some way. My guest this week is Michael Olzinski. Okay, I'm going to say it right off the bat that this one was a real treat for me. Mike is a good friend, coaching colleague, and occasional training partner of mine. He's one of the most interesting people I know, as well as one of the smartest guys I've ever met. He's got a master's degree in exercise physiology and primarily coaches triathletes as a member of the staff at Purple Patch Fitness. He's also the co-founder and head coach of the Nth Degree Athletic Club, one of the most popular and fastest growing run crews in San Francisco. Mike played hockey and lacrosse through college, but took an interest in endurance sports while in grad school, and he has never looked back. He started running road races before transitioning to triathlon for a while, and in recent years, he's actually put on the spikes and raced middle distances on the track. In this conversation, we talked about where Mike's interests in athletics started and how it's grown over the years, why he's gotten into racing middle distances on the track despite being in his mid-30s, the influence his coaches have had on his life and how he landed in his current profession, working through rough patches in both running and in life, starting his own run crew and sharing his love for the sport with other people, and a ton more. All right, let's get right into it with Michael Olzinski. This is great. You're a good friend, coaching colleague, sometimes training partner. We just ran the other day on the track uh, on Wednesday, did a nice interval session together, and I'm excited to sit down with you and welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Well, to be honest, I'm a bit nervous. My imposter syndrome feelings are very high, but uh, honored, honored guest, honored guest, honored to be included in your list of guests. Well, let's start there. Why are you nervous or feeling like an imposter? Um, you know, we I, run together all the time. I see you multiple yes. times a week. You're you're my one of my best friends that I have, truly. And uh, I just look at the people that I've I've listened to a lot of the shows. I've been following ever since you started, and I'm like looking at the list as as you asked me to come on. I'm like, oh my god! Like ever since I knew about the sport of running, I've been watching these people, whether it's competing or reading their books or following their coaching models. I'm like, holy crap, these are all the people that I've genuinely loved like my entire life. And uh, I'm like, to be included is like a little bit of a shell shock, honestly. 
No, I think you deserve to be included. I mean, there are certainly some big recognizable names on that list. Shalane Flanagan, Des Linden, um, Scott Jurek, Dean Carnez. I mean, we can go down the list of of runners who have been on the show mm-hmm. that most people who follow the sport would see their name and be like, oh, I've, I've at least heard that that name before. But And I love having those conversations. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. And a lot of those relationships go way back for me to my days at competitor and covering events and interviewing folks and so on and so forth. But I love bringing these conversations to people with folks that I have cross paths with along the way who aren't as well known. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of them, such as yourself, I'm a bit closer to. Others, I don't even know quite that well because I think you have some really fascinating parts of your story and a lot of things to share with listeners of this show that they're going to be able to take away from this conversation and apply to their own life in some way, whether that's from an inspirational standpoint, an educational standpoint, training, coaching, enthusiasm for the sport. And as people listening to this are going to find out over the course of the next hour or so, there are a lot of layers to Michael Zinsky that are super <laughs> duper interesting. I mean, let's start with what you're going to be doing tomorrow. You're going to Berkeley. Oh, yeah. You're going to race 1,500 meters on the track in one of the open meets. I think they have, what, four or five of them? Um, this year, the they even dropped one of them, I think, but like two or three. And yeah. what's interesting to me about that is you are in your mid-30s at this point. You did not run high school track and cross country. You did not run college track and cross country. You are not a professional athlete. Mm -hmm. And for the last couple of years, you have been really getting into track as Mm -hmm. an athlete. You're racing tomorrow. You raced 5,000 on the track last year at Portland Track Fest. You ran 1,500 meters at various open meets. We've run miles together. We're going to do some stuff later this summer. You were just showing me the other day. Before the workout, you have a new tattoo uh-huh. on your left <laughs> shoulder blade of a track. Yeah, um, it's true. Three four lane track or something like that on your left shoulder blade, which I I think is so awesome and super interesting. Mm-hmm. So let's just start there. What compels a man in his mid to late thirties with wow. no competitive background in track and field mm-hmm. to get into it at this point of your life? That's a great question, and there are definitely layers to that answer. Um, you know, interestingly enough, even though I've never really got to compete on the track at the in like the more, you know, competitive years of my life, I was always near it. I always felt close to it. Like it would always be a place to go and do workouts. And just in my my life of athletics and following athletics, it has always been like a height of passion of mine, watching track and field, watching the athletes, watching like the purity of just you in a circle and like really seeing what the true human limits are. And like when I started studying in school, one of the things I sought out to, to find out is like, how do humans push themselves to the absolute limit of what's within their body? And to me, some, some pure sports like track and field or like swimming, things like that just really bubbled up. And I was like, this is where it's like, y- you can go to the absolute max. And um, as a competitive person, which I just cannot shake, I've tried to, it just doesn't work. Um, I just love to be in the arena, you know, and there's no better feeling than just lining up in the arena with people on either side of you close 
You know, I just love that sense of, of pure athletics. It's true. And, um, you know, I've done endurance. I've done a lot of things where you kind of spend a lot of time on your own, whether it's cycling or trail running, which I love that side of things too. But to me, what, what really lights the spark is just like feeling intimate. And, and there's nothing like a 1500 to feel intimate. <laughs> <laughs> well, as your friend, a fellow athlete, mm-hmm. a coach from the outside looking in, I love it. Um, mm-hmm. I love seeing you go to a meet like tomorrow where there's going to be a couple college kids who's who are waiting for their outdoor season to start, mm-hmm. high school kids here who are kind of in between seasons because indoor is not a big thing. And then you. Like, mm-hmm. what are you, 35, 36? 34. 34-year-old. Going on 35. Okay, yeah. so 35-year-old Michael <laughs> Zinski uh, stepping on the track, spiking up oh, yeah. next to these folks and <laughs> going after it for three and three-quarter laps. Like, mm-hmm. I think there's something really beautiful about that because let's look at it. Like, mm-hmm. most um, professional middle-distance runners, uh-huh. by the time they get to 34, 35 years old, they're moving on up in distance. Like, sure. they're not racing 1,500 meters on the track, and their careers, unless they're going to move up to the marathon and spend mm-hmm. a few years there, they're kind of winding down their mid-30s. I mean, we're seeing more and more masters runners now, not really on the track, moving up, moving to the roads, but, like, by the time the track athletes get to their mid-30s, I mean, they're on their way out in one fashion or another. So you're not seeing many, many of those folks. Mm-hmm. Most people who get into running, competitive running later in life, such as yourself, they go to longer events. And I mean, you did that and we'll get into it mm-hmm. over the course of this conversation, but they're doing half marathons, they're doing marathons, they get into a groove with that sort of thing. They might drop down, do like a 10K, 5K, like as part, part of their training, but they don't focus on that stuff. And oftentimes it's because it's foreign, it doesn't look fun. It's scary and it really fucking hurts to race those distances really hard. And yeah. I love that at this point of your life, you're like, nope, this is what I am going all in on. And it's not to make money. It's not to qualify for the mm-hmm. Olympic trials. It's just something that you want to do for yourself. And there's something really beautiful about that that I admire and appreciate. And is part and it's part of what has kind of reinvigorated my own fire at almost 38 years old with a background in all of this stuff, mm-hmm. having raced in high school, college, and beyond, having been away from the track uh, from a competitive standpoint for several years now, to want to get back on with you this yeah. summer. And I probably won't run a personal best. That's okay. But going to the track with you the other day and doing some fast 200s and traveling there together and like warming up and going through the drills and then stepping on the line. Like the, the hair is like standing on the back of my totally. neck as I talk about that. See, so there it is. I, it's happening right but, now, just sitting here. But that's, that's what mm-hmm. part of, part of what I, I love about you and I admire and respect about you is your willingness to go there at this point in your life. You know, and I think it's, um, I might be lucky. Like maybe I'm lucky in the sense that I do believe people with more experience or a background might get a little bit tied to their past or what they could run or the splits they used to hit or this and that. And like, there might be a, something that they just don't like about going back after it. If maybe they're not able to train the way they used to and hit the numbers they used to, maybe I'm lucky that I don't have that attachment. But at the same time, I'm also kind of fighting the fight to hashtag bring back the mile because I think it's amazing. And, uh, you know, realize that it's all about the process. It's like whatever you're doing, as long as you're doing it as hard and as best as you possibly can, it doesn't matter. You don't have any business comparing it with your ghost from the past. It just doesn't make any sense. 
you can always get better tomorrow. That's what I think. You yeah, know? and the takeaways go beyond improving as an athlete or mm-hmm. getting faster. They apply to the rest of your life as well. Oh, you know, when I really was thinking about what it meant to me, like before this chat, it's like running 15 or 5K, It it's so much more than how my run training is going. I look at it as like a marker on just life in general. Totally, 100%. Like it, it, how I feel running certain intervals or running certain distances gives me the story on how my life's going. You know, how I'm, how I'm eating, how I'm resting, my stress throughout things. Like if I'm making good decisions financially or like personally or socially, like all those things bubble up when, when I think about getting ready to race. And uh, maybe if it was a little different, or if it was just a long run, I might have all these other different excuses. But just having under five minutes of assessment, it, it just tells me everything about how things are going. It really does. It's interesting. If things aren't going well, how mm-hmm. do you work through it? Oh, good question. I try to just come up to the surface a little bit and uh, look at the big picture. I've I've gotten better as the years have gone by of just really not getting attached to a certain day. And I'll, I'll even not, not get attached to certain weeks. I have weeks that go by that I just feel like it's nothing can possibly go right, you know? But I just look at life and like how gifted and lucky I am to be able to do what I do and enjoy the things I enjoy. I'm like, there's nothing that really can get me down. There's just nothing. I think that's such an important takeaway because anyone mm-hmm. listening to this has had those periods, whether it's in mm-hmm. athletics, doesn't matter what level you're at, or in their life at some point where we all have a bad day, we all have a bad workout, we all have bad weeks and months, as you just described, we have bad training blocks where just mm-hmm. nothing can go right. Um, but to your point, you've got to be able to step outside of that and mm-hmm. zoom out and see it for what it is, a period of time, and realize that even when things aren't going well, there is going to be some positive takeaway that's going to help push you forward. Absolutely. And I mean, I really love the idea of just not having it always be running, you know? So like kind of funny, we're joking around at the beginning, but to me, music is something that if, if running's not going great, think about music for a little bit, like do something special, like go for a run, but maybe like spend an evening working on the guitar, like something completely unrelated or, or try and read something different or go somewhere you've never been, you know? And just bring it away from running. And then when you come back in two or three or four days, like it usually, it usually comes back. You Have know? you always had that well-rounded of a mindset? Nope. <laughs> when did it flip for you? Nope, definitely not. Um, I think, honestly, moving to California was a big one. Um, when I was kind of moved out here in 2015 from New York City, and it really had a big impact on my mindset, and it shifted things a lot for me. It really did. I, I think because um, I was I was thirty at that time, thirtieth birthday. I moved here on my thirtieth birthday, like checked into the airport, turned thirty that day. Um, I think before that, it was just really easy for me to get absorbed and overstressed and not really see the big picture. And uh, maybe New York does it to you a little bit. I'm not saying I don't love that city. It's a wonderful place. Taught me everything, but it can it can be that place that is easy to get in the weeds, I think. 
Yeah, I think environment know? definitely has an influence on that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But regardless of where you live, there's people listening to this who feel that way about running. It's like one mm-hmm. track mind. Like mm-hmm. running is the most important thing. Doesn't mean they have to be a professional, but it can become consuming. You coach a lot of triathletes, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, which yeah. we'll get into later in this conversation, but that can become really, really consuming mm-hmm. and you end up blocking everything out. But people who don't have that in terms of athletics, it can happen with work. You become, uh-huh. you know, just sort of solely focused on what you have to do between the hours of nine and five, nine and six, nine and seven, whatever your your day to day is, and you can't get out of that and you have nothing else to I hate saying fall back on, but mm-hmm. to to sort of balance everything out. So I think that I think that perspective is important to talk about. Yeah. You know, being a coach helps with that. <laughs> like seeing other people go through that struggle, you know, and you can probably talk about this equally as much. But when when you talk to people and you can just tell that they are so centered and so focused on one thing, and it's quite easy for you on the outside to be like, well, hey, like, why don't you do this today? Or why don't you do something different? Go for a hike, go for a walk, go to the mall. I don't know. Um, and to them, it's like, holy cow, this is like a revolutionary. Absolutely. To you, it's just like a little obvious thing. So after doing that with other people for so many years, all of a sudden, I'm like, holy shit, this works for me too. <laughs> well, you as know? a coach, you see that in the athletes that you mm-hmm. work with. And when you see them going too deep into a hole and they can't see any, they're not letting any light get in from mm-hmm. anywhere else, uh, you want to pull them out of that and be like, you know, hey, I know this is really important to you, but you got to spend time with your family. Right. You got to show up at work, you know, every day. You've got to like have these other supporting structures in place or, what you're trying to do in terms of your athletic pursuits isn't going to be sustainable. But also as a coach, at least I feel this way, I know you do too, I want to practice what I preach. Because mm-hmm. if I'm telling my athletes this, but I'm acting a different way, what kind of example does does that set? Um, and you know, we've coached together, we run together all the time. And that's just something, I mean, I see it in my own athletes, but I also, I mean, you are the company that you keep. And that's why I feel really grateful to have guys like you and Nate as friends and colleagues and guys I get together with on a, on a weekly basis because it rubs off. Mm-hmm. And it's true. I mean, it's, it sounds cliche and I've heard it on this podcast before and it's, but like a balanced life is a progressive life. And if you're balanced and everything is going well, you're going to perform well. It's just, you've seen it over history. You know, if, if your family life's going great, if you're feeling good at work, if you're making good decisions, like you're, you're just going to run fast. Mm-hmm. It's just, this is the way it is. And I think, I, I don't think my best years are behind me because of those reasons. I think that keeping balance throughout everything is, is going to open up opportunity to come. And you I don't fr- know what, but maybe. Well, and you got fresh legs from not pounding the miles That's, from the time you were like 14 years old. So this is you got true. that going uh, in your direction as mm-hmm. well. I'd love to dig back into your early interest in the sport. You got mm-hmm. into it a little bit um, in the first part of this conversation, but were you one of those kids who got really excited when the Olympics came around every four years just to watch track? Yes, 100%. Um, I can go back as far as 1996 and- Atlanta. Yep, because my uncle was living in Atlanta at that time, uh, my uncle Brian. And I just remember being so excited about it and not really knowing what was going on, but like, holy cow. And I was playing hockey at that time, so big into sports. And my dad was a huge influence on like 
just loving competition in athletics. And of course, Michael Johnson, you know, we all know that. I remember though, watching the 10K and I think it was Haley Gebrselazzi yeah. running that mm-hmm. year. And, and um, Platt Turgot. I, I, see, I don't remember any of the names except Haley because I couldn't pronounce it. <laughs> and I was like, I was 11. And um, I, I, of course, the gold shoes and Michael Johnson, I just, that was like epic. But I wanted to watch more of it. And I was like, this is rad. Like these guys and these girls are just flying. And I was stunned and I was just intrigued by it. And then, of course, funny enough, they want to knock out the 5K and the 10K because it's not interesting to anyone. But it was like one of my earliest memories of loving running. Well, funny enough. not to go off on a tangent here, <laughs> but I'll go off on a mini it. one here. When it's packaged and presented well, mm-hmm. it can be really compelling because mm-hmm. that's around the same time that I really started to take an interest in the sport, even though it was a few years after that mm-hmm. that I got into it. But it was Michael Johnson, the gold shoes. I remember... Nike had a pair of trainers during that time. They looked like shark teeth. Uh, they were like kind of blue and they had little hints of gold and they were like Michael Johnson's training shoe, mm-hmm. Air Max, you know, something or another. I was like, this is cool. I'm like, that guy ripping around the track in like 19.32 seconds. It's yeah. pretty freaking cool. Um, and I wasn't even into like the distance stuff at that point. I wanted to be a sprinter. That's a different story for another day. <laughs> um, but it was just really exciting to watch these guys mm-hmm participate in the oldest and purest form of competition that exists, first to the finish line wins. Yeah, I, that connected with me at a young age. And even though I never did it, I always like kept my eyes on it, you know, from that year, like 11, always been a part of it. And so every year, like 2000, 2004, 08, I mean, then I just started to get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And here we are now, 2020, are now. <laughs> an Olympic year. And I know how fired up you are about it because we talk I about it, it all the time. You've been into the indoor races Mm -hmm. these last several weeks. I know you're going to be super fired up for the trials this summer. I sure am. I mean, my my TV gets recorded for like three weeks. (laughs) It's it's just nuts. I like it. You mentioned how you played hockey Mm. around that time in 1992. Take me back to your early days Mm -hmm. as Michael Olszynski, emerging athlete. What were you into? Man. And... Yeah, what were you into? I wanted to make it to the NHL. That was it, plain and simple. I know you're from New York. Where'd Mm -hmm. you grow up? I grew up upstate New York, um, outside of Binghamton. So hockey country. Hockey country, hockey and lacrosse country, and ended up playing both. (laughs) Um, I don't know, my my dad just got me in skates on a frozen pond. I don't know. I can't remember. Like there was double blades, like four years old, three years old. I remember going to Brick Pond in Owego and it just froze over and he he built a wooden goal with like chicken wire and he would take it down to the ice and just shoot around and like my little brother was around then and I just like that's every single athletic memory that I have is hockey related until pretty much the first year of college. But um we played travel, moved around the state, moved. To, then we got pretty good. Like our travel team got really good. And we won the state one year. I scored the game winning goal in overtime. Um, we traveled to Nationals, which is out in Flint, Michigan. I think I was in ninth grade at that time. Um, and my coach throughout those years was like partially my dad, who coached me a lot. 
um, even coached me on a team for two years. But funny enough, the, the, the world is a funny place. His neighbor now, maybe two houses down, was my old coach, Pierre Lagunier. And um, I don't know how many French Canadians you know, <laughs> but he is classic, epic French Canadian guy. And he like, he instilled the athletic mindset and the coaching mindset in me from like day one. And he brought our team that was, you know, we played together for six, seven years from just a kind of a bunch of squirts running around doing God knows what to state champions. What was it that he did that was so impressionable on you? <sighs> His no bullshit mentality. Like he was, we, we feared him, but out of pure respect that he knew everything that he was doing. And like, he wouldn't show a lot of excitement or emotion. He was very, very like by the book, like let's play, let's play hard. But when he got happy with you, I'll never forget this. Like the moment he would give you a pat on the back or like tell you you did a good job, you knew you did a good job. And it, and it would like make your month, not your day, not your week. It would be like, Oh, Coach Lagunier, he like patted me on the back today. And to that was a big deal. Huge deal. Coaches are impressionable people. And I, I think about that team. I think about those people every day. Um, I mean, every day too. I went to high school and then I played four years of high school hockey with, with our team. And I think we were undefeated for three years. Lost maybe two games. I don't know how we lost those games. But um, Do you play any other sports or was it all hockey all the time? Um, I played hockey. I played golf because <laughs> our hockey coach was like didn't want us playing football. Mm -hmm. I would have played football, but um, it was before hockey season, so it just didn't make sense. We can get injured, so I actually played golf. Loved golf, still love golf. Uh, and then I did not know that about yeah, you. I played high school golf for four years. When was the last round that you played? Uh, six years ago. <laughs> okay. Yep. I was going to say I've known you for five years, years now, yep. nope. and I don't I don't know you to grab a bag of clubs uh -huh. and go to the golf course on a weekend. I shot 69 one time. That was my, my one of my highlights in life. Um, my dad was there, watched that, saw me sink the final putt on 18. Um, and and then just as just to be an athlete, like and have something to do. Otherwise, I would just be left to my own devices, which would have been dangerous. I just started playing lacrosse because our high school team had a fun lacrosse team, and um, and just that's it, man. It's like so funny enough. When I got into endurance sports, like one of the, leaving grad school, I started doing like road racing and got into triathlon and got into some half marathons and stuff. It just, for me, I don't know, it never felt the way my body wanted to move. It didn't really feel good to me. And going for a four hour ride or like a three hour run or, no, that didn't really go for many three hour runs, let's be real. But um, going for an hour and a half run, just never felt comfortable for me. Never, never. But going and running sprints or going and doing hills or going to the track just felt like I was home. And maybe there's a little nature nurture, like how your how your muscle fibers are. are well, it makes formed sense given your background. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. you look at hockey, it's a lot of sprint to the puck, yeah. sprint to the puck, sprint to the puck. Mm -hmm. um, lacrosse, it's a lot of it's basically a big fartlek workout, right? Huge, I mean yeah. you're sprint, 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 throw. Mm -hmm. Wait, 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 sprint, 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 throw. Wait, wait. So I mean to me, yeah. Now, know, we were that, on the ice for longer than sixty seconds. We were getting chewed out. Yeah. No question. Longer than sixty seconds, you're you're wasting energy. And you're doing the team a disservice. For I sure. think a lot of people listening to this who 
weren't distance runners early in age, whether or not they played other sports, but mm-hmm. s- definitely people who played like, you know, basketball or hockey or something like lacrosse, they struggle when they move up because that's not what they're used to. They're used mm-hmm. to working in very short, intense intervals, getting a rest. Mm-hmm. Power is important. Speed is important. Explosiveness is important. Those things will benefit you eventually right, as an right. endurance athlete mm-hmm. and as a distance runner. But if you haven't been doing the long, steady stuff for a while, I think that's a hard hump for a lot of people to get over. You can get mm-hmm. over it, but as you as you did, and with many of the athletes that you you work with, but I'm not, I'm not too surprised to hear that that was that was challenging. Yeah, it absolutely was, and I I would deal with a little injury. Like I would get some issues running running longer and slower. I was having more issues than I do now. Um, and there, there's I don't know what the reason is for that. There could be a lot of things, but um, yeah, it's true. I think those athletes, you just have to be aware of who you are. And everyone's different, and it's not a one-size-fits-all for running a marathon even. And if you're one of those athletes, you might just think differently about what kind of key workouts you put in an endurance program, you know? Let's hit pause on that. Mm -hmm. We'll go back to some coaching talk later on in this conversation. I'd love to continue working through your progression as an athlete. Were you a competitive kid? (laughs) Am Am I still a kid? I think I think I've been a competitive kid, adolescent, young adult, and back to kid now. <laughs> I claim not, but anyone that knows me will say absolute bullshit. Yeah, I think I'm a very competitive person. Is that just in athletics or does it spill over into other areas of your life? <sighs> Funny enough, I think it's just athletics. It turns on and it turns off pretty quickly. Um, I don't really feel competitive about anything else, really. Um, work or you know friendship or music anything like that everything feels good but by getting on the track or going to an event I feel very competitive is it hard for you to turn it off no no not at all because the moment changes I think and when it's you give it all for that moment and it should kind of unwind if you use it appropriately I think um competitiveness and I even wrote about this a little bit but I love competition because of what it draws out of us and it, if it's lasting all the time I don't feel like it's being used properly you know what I mean I do I Does love that, that. yeah um, I just talked to Laura Schmidt who we both know yeah. about this for mm-hmm. one of my last conversations for this podcast and she gave a similar answer because she's a super competitive person and I asked her if it's ever gotten her into trouble and she's like can, can it? And then she thought through it and she was like well she's like yeah I guess if you if you don't channel it the right way it could get you into trouble but she's able like you are to switch it on and off but we know people in our respective lives who can. It spills do, over yes. into everything. But I like what you mm-hmm. just said about it. Like if if you're competitive all the time, you're not using it the right way. I, I agree. And it's a really interesting thing. I think it's such an interesting topic. And and you said it well and and, and Laura and her family know it all too well. Um it's it's a motivation. It can be a motivation and it shouldn't be toxic. You know, and I think if it gets toxic there's something else 
besides pushing yourself or pushing others or winning. You know? That's fueling it. Yeah. I feel like there's something else that's kind of muddying the water a bit. And yeah, I don't know what that is. But something interesting to think about. Yeah, well, it's probably different for yeah. everyone. Mm-hmm. No situation's exactly the same, or no two situations are exactly the same. For sure. Hey, we're taking a quick break to say thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode. They're offering a phenomenal deal to Morning Shakeout listeners right now. Use the promo code SHAKEOUT, all caps, all one word, when you check out at newbalance.com, and you'll save 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. Some restrictions do apply, but that should cover you for most products on their website. I've been running in the Fresh Foam 1080 V10 for the past several weeks, and it's quickly become one of the workhorses in my shoe stable. It provides the right blend of cushioning and responsiveness to make my daily miles and long runs comfortable and enjoyable. I've also been alternating between a couple different New Balance tops of late that are worth checking out. On colder days, my go-to has been the NB Heat Quarter Zip. It's lightweight, but keeps me warm when it's under 40 degrees Fahrenheit. There's a handy little zip pocket on the chest that I like to throw my house key in, and it's one of my favorite design elements about the piece. On warmer days, when I get out later in the morning or mid-afternoon, the Impact Run short sleeve has been my shirt of choice. It's super light with sharp, solid colorways and subtle design elements. It also fits great, not too tight, not too loose, and will be a staple in my wardrobe for a long time to come. Remember, use the code SHAKEOUT. That's all caps, all one word, when you check out at newbalance.com and you'll save 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. My thanks to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Going back to high school, mm-hmm. big time hockey player, got into lacrosse uh, during your later years. Mm-hmm. Did you know that you wanted to participate in athletics in college? I lived one year. I remember because I, I graduated undergrad in Charlotte, North Carolina after playing the cross there and treating my body basically like a Louisiana honky-tonk instead of a temple. <laughs> Not good years in college. But um, I remember coming back home and I was working at a dental office. I, um, Dr. Lacey, I was his assistant. I thought I wanted to get into dentistry. And it was I was like kind of working under him applying to schools, taking the DATs, all this stuff. And I wasn't playing a sport at that time. So this is college. After college, after undergrad. After college. Let's hit pause there. Mm -hmm. We'll get there. Um, But in high school, Mm -hmm. when you were playing hockey and lacrosse Uh and you were thinking about college, did Mm. you know that you wanted to be a collegiate athlete? Was it on your radar? Did you not think you had the chops to do it? I'd love to dig into that a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I would not have gone to college without sports. Um, my first year was just an epic F up. Um, I went to a state school up in Albany. I played hockey there for one year as a freshman, and I just trashed myself. I just completely... Like physically or just in general? Um, as a college freshman, drinking way too much. Okay. and. And staying up till 4 a.m., trying to do go to practice, trying to do school. Like, I just, it was just a classic stupid kid move that I learned a lot from. So, I actually had to transfer. I had a scholarship and I had to drop it because I failed basically. My second semester was just horrendous. Uh, So, then there was a school that was recruiting me for lacrosse, and I was like, let's, I just got to get out of New York, maybe get somewhere down south and try a different sport. 
So then, but I, it, it was because of the lacrosse team that I went to Charlotte. They recruited me, and I just liked the school. It was a beautiful place. I had a friend there, so I just got into it. But it was definitely because of the sport at first, you know. <laughs> was that a Division two program? Yeah, Division two, Queens University. Yep. Were you a scholarship athlete? Uh, at that, yeah, I was a small scholarship, small athletic scholarship, and then got an academic scholarship after a year there because I got, got my grades back up. When you were in high school, did mm-hmm. you know, you said without sports, you wouldn't have gone to college. Mm-hmm. Did you have any idea what you wanted to study academically or was it, I'll figure that out later, I'm going to play hockey and lacrosse? It was, it was definitely science, 100%. Never wanted to look at anything other than science. It's always fascinated me. So I was like right into biology. And I did have the interest in like the human performance field and just the human body just always intrigued me. I think it's a wonderful machine. I think it's magical. I really do. And so I just wanted to learn everything I could about it. Did you have any idea in your late teens or early 20s what you wanted to do professionally or you just knew that you wanted to play sports and study science? Um, Both. Yeah, I kind of, you know, funny enough, I wanted to go to PT school. That was definitely on my list. And I even, uh, one of the dads from our hockey team was a PT for the local um, amateur team, um, the Iceman, the BC Iceman, which then was the AHL team. And he even brought me in. And like as a high schooler, he brought me into his clinic and he brought me into the locker room with the hockey team. And I got to see him work with the athletes and kind of warm them up and stretch them out and everything. So that was, that was on my mind for sure. And it just occurred to me, if we're studying the body, at some point in my life, that gap will be bridged, basically. Fast forward a little bit. Mm-hmm. You went on and got your master's in mm-hmm. exercise physiology. Yep. Did you know pretty well by the end of your time at Queens and Charlotte that that's the direction that you wanted to go? Or did it take a little while to get there? No, it took, it took a year of not having sport in my life. It really did. Because um, when I was digging in and trying to make it into dentistry, which I was super fascinated by as well, and it just seemed like a wonderful career, I had some real soul-searching moments. It's like, well, if I'm doing this, then where, where am I going to be involved in sports? And I even took the test. I didn't do that bad, but not stand out. Um, this is to get into dentistry to get, school? To get into dental school. And when it came down, my, my boss, he took me down to UPenn to introduce me to some of his, the school that he went to. And as I'm leaving, I'm like, I don't think I can spend the rest of my life be happy and not have athletics involved. And that was the deciding moment. Take me through that year. You were working mm-hmm. at the dental office. Yeah. Were you participating in sports at all or active in any way? I was playing, um, we had like a club lacrosse team okay. that we played at the local high school. We just get together, basically play enough to drink like 12 beers, <laughs> which was, you know, 15 minutes. But That uh, was the extent of it. That was the extent. I would work out and I used the gym a lot. I was always in the gym, always in the gym. I would run on my own just for fun. Um, run For some reason, I had a intuitively good sense about run workouts. So I'd do like hill repeats i would go do 800s at the track because i just loved all the 800 runners so um i actually just like i'm gonna go to the track and see how fast i can do that so you were they did did 145 what can i do (laughs) (laughs) 
You were planting seeds without even knowing it. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So you realize you don't want to go to dental school. Mm -hmm. Was that scary for you? Because then you're in a position where, shit, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do next. I saw exercise physiology and I was like, okay, well, at least this is with exercise. I like exercise. I like physiology. I like exercise. I like the body. Cool. But I had no freaking idea. And I'm like, what is an exercise physiologist? No one knows to this day. There's only a few states that's even recognized, you know? But um, it's like, well, that seems like a great idea. (laughs) And like, I had no idea what I was going to do with it. No idea what anyone did with it for that matter. Um, PT school seemed too difficult for me. (laughs) It seemed like they had to work too hard and did a lot of clinic work. And I was like, I just want to kind of be in the lab, like put put masks on people and prick them in the finger. That seems fun. I have no idea what kind of job will come out of this, but (laughs) I'll do it until I get a degree and then figure it out. That's pretty much what happened. And um, I was lucky enough to be at a great school in Brooklyn, LIU, had a great few mentors. Um, David Spear was my professor and I worked for him as a GA and he was just like, that guy was contagious. Like his passion was just contagious. Passion for exercise physiology, learning. Learning, education, okay. the betterment of humankind, like the, the health of people, the mental health, physical health. He was just a wonderful guy. Um, and we had some great people. And that school, undergrad, had great athletics as well. And I did some work and some interning with our head strength and conditioning coach named Richard James. And come, lo and behold, he was on the Jamaican hurdling team for Olympics. And uh, he, he was immersed in track and field. We had a great track and field program. And I just kind of watched you know, I would just watch what they would do. I would watch the training. I had no business being around, but I just kind of enjoyed it. And it started to really sink in my mind a little bit then. What were you doing yourself athletically? And I don't even mean mm-hmm. competitively, but in terms of your day-to-day, were you still running as a means of working out? Did you have any competitive ambitions? Were you still playing any kind of club yeah. lacrosse or hockey or anything? Take me through it. <laughs> that is when, when I was when I moved to New York is when... I was impacted and influenced by the New York Roadrunners. And that took me for that took me into like a whole whirlwind of their worlds. And it was awesome. And I love the Roadrunners for that. Do you remember the first race that you signed up for yep. and participated in? I sure do. I think it was called the Al Gordon Gridiron Classic. <laughs> that just happened. That just happened. It's usually the Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, that was that was up there. That was definitely one of the first three or four. I did a 10K around Christmas. Um, I did do like local 5Ks when I was back at home in high school just because everyone in town did them. But yeah, it was a couple of those initial New York Roadrunners races that were in Prospect Park, um, even up in Central Park. And I just fell in love with it right away. What was it about them that made you fall in love with them? Oh man, how badly I got the shit kicked out of me. <laughs> like running a, a four mile or 10K and losing as bad to as many people, I just felt just humbling, upset. Yeah, I was humbled like none other. And I was like, how can this many people be that much better than me? But obviously motivated, like, motivated. by it too. And that, that was a healthy feeling, I think. It was a healthy feeling of like, 
oh, there's this whole other world and you're in like the greatest city in the country and like these people know what they're doing. So you got to start learning if you want to ever be on their level. Were you melding it with your educational pursuits at all? Yes, definitely. I was Almost asking, using yourself as a guinea pig? Uh, that's, that's you, you nailed it. Experiments, that's all it was. And I started even leading a few run clubs. Um, at that time, I was starting to do some work as a personal trainer just to make some money. Um, and Equinox had came to our school and they had the recruiters and they were interested and I just started working there and leading some run clubs around and using those run clubs as experiments and using myself as an experiment because I was learning about VO2 and, and lactate threshold and, and movement mechanics, kinesiology. I was like, oh, interesting. Let's analyze how we can get ourselves to be better runners through this, through this science. Take me through some of those experiments. Mm, good God. Maybe one or two that you remember offhand. I mean, I, whether I mean, it was on yourself yeah, or sure. with the run club. Oh, I, I tried it on myself. I, I remember making a, a program spreadsheet um, just using like a Google document. And I shit you not, I, I think I was reading something from Greg McMillan at the time and taking the, the exercise physiology work that we're doing and heart rate training. Um, I got super into Polar because we got ourselves free Polar gear. At the uh, <clears throat> at the school, like the heart rate, the heart rate training strap, stuff, heart rate okay. strap, and heart rate thing. So I started writing myself programs based on heart rate zones. So I was like, okay, you're gonna run 60 minutes in zone two, then you're gonna go the next day and run three by five minutes in zone four, and then go run in zone one and zone six, five, whatever. So I just had no clue what the hell I was doing, but you wanted to see what the response would be. Yeah, see what the response. And I was trying. I was one of those people watching to watch. Okay, is my heart rate at 170 yet? Oh, no, keep running. 170? Nope, nope. Okay, go, 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 go. Like, just, it was weird, but it was it was kind of making sense. And it intuitively was like, okay, well, if you use zone four for this workout, then the next day you should probably go use zone one or two and, and maybe do some kind of exercise to enhance your mobility for the following day. And, and yeah. Aside from satisfying mm -hmm. your own curiosity with all of this, were you mm -hmm. starting to think about how you could use it as a potential career after grad school? It, the wheels had started turning a little bit. Were you thinking about coaching yet? No, not really. I was, I was more, I was getting involved in a lot of strength and conditioning and I took the CSCS test, the National Strength and Conditioning Association, so many words, <laughs> Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist. Specialist. <laughs> Say that. Six times. It's a weird acronym. That's, acronym. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes is well known. Actually, what it stands for. All consonants, for no vowels. Right. Tough one to so roll I, off the tongue. I was really getting involved in that. And um, I was interested because all our coaches at the school were CSES certified. And Richard James was. It's like, oh, these guys got a cool job. Maybe they'll, I can work for the Rangers. Or maybe I'll go work for like the Knicks or something. We had people that were in all those environments. And so I was like, oh, I you saw the possibility. Saw the possibility. In fact, one of my great friends from when I was a trainer back in those days, Trevor, he now lives up in Toronto and he's working with, I think, the Leafs and the Raptors. He's like, I've, the man. Yeah, yeah, he's the man. I look up to him now. Pretty sweet gig. <laughs> yeah, killing it. Well, I'm sure he and mm -hmm. others that you were with are looking up to 
you as well because you're doing some pretty cool stuff right now. And I do want to get into that. Mm-hmm. We're following a pretty good line here. So I'd love to. This is great. Stay stuff I haven't it. talked about in so long. That's well, cool. I've you bring it out of people. <laughs> for the last five years, we run together mm-hmm. all the time. We have these conversations very frequently and I'm learning a lot about you yeah. that I didn't know, or at least filling in some of the, the holes that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wondered about how many years were you at LIU? Two years. Okay. Graduate program to two years there. What year did you finish up? 2010, I think. Okay. Like 08, 09, um, Oh, I graduated in 07. I spent a year at home. So like nine, 10, 11, I think I was in grad school. Did you go back to Brooklyn? I stayed there. You stayed? I stayed because I went to school. That was where LIU was. Yeah. And then when I finished, I had a full-time job at Equinox. Okay. When you yeah. said you went home, I thought you went home to mm. upstate New York and then came back. Nope. That was in, in after undergrad, in between. That was in between. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you finished up grad school at LIU. Mm-hmm. You stay in Brooklyn until you moved out here yeah. to mm-hmm. California so New York. five years ago. Take a job at Equinox, mm-hmm. and you're what being a personal trainer? Yeah, personal trainer. And when I graduated, they were pretty cool, and they were like, "Hey, if you want to have a little more structure, we'll make you a manager." So I took a job as a full time job as the fitness manager at our gym down in Brooklyn Heights. Okay. So I was still training people, still doing some some stuff like coaching random locations, but I was then managing our training department there, like the educational side of it. And were you happy doing that? I loved it. It was a blast. I really enjoyed those those years. It was good stuff. Athletically, mm. where were you at at that time? Were you still doing a lot of these NYR races around New York City? Were you yep. thinking about moving up in distance? Had you gotten into triathlon at that point? A triathlon was getting close, and it was the first triathlon I did was New York Roadrunners. They did a a sprint triathlon, like pool swim. Huh. Up at basically at the uh, the old Mets Stadium, okay, kind of around Shea. Oh, was that a Shea Stadium? No, it was where the U.S. Open is, like the um, Flushing Meadows. Flushing Meadow. Yeah, mm-hmm. awesome. That was super fun. But you know what was awesome is um, every June, July, there was a open track and field meet at Icon Stadium over in God. I don't even Randall's Island. Oh, that's where Island. they used to have the Randall's mm-hmm. Island. That's where mm-hmm. they used to have the Diamond League meet. It is. I think there's actually. I think Bolt ran some crazy record there at some point. But I found out about that and I was like, oh, this is cool. This is actually even more fun than the Roadrunners races. And I, I was running 800. I was running the mile. I ran the two mile a few times. And so it was a short-lived season. It was like four weeks in the summer, but I went to every single one. Had a blast with it. Had a blast. And um, would, I mean, if, for me to get there from... Crown Heights, it was a commute. It was like two hours to get there. But I, t- I did it every single time. How long were you at Equinox? Uh, well, going on 10 years because I still teach right, a class. Right, you're still there. involved. <laughs> that much I know. Yeah. But in that mm-hmm. role that you had um, I, I in was Brooklyn. manager in Brooklyn for a year, and then I moved up to 50th and Broadway. I managed there for like two years. Okay. And that's when I started to really get into triathlon. And that shifted everything. Then... When What's, I did my, what was this? What was the initial spark? Ooh, I I realized I wasn't competitive enough running the 10k. So I'm like, where else could I try? What might an athlete be good at that is not pure speed based? 
So I just saw how far away I was from being competitive as a runner. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know what? Let's, let's try this triathlon thing. Because then you can kind of mix it up a little bit. And I felt like I was more confident in my ability to just mix it up. Did you have any swimming and biking experience no. at the time? I learned how to swim at LIU in the pool when I was in grad school. As part of a class or just on just, the side? I just went and just kept going. <laughs> and I got the toys, I got all the gear and stuff, and I, I no, I just kept trying, basically. It was horrendous. Um, but that's when I actually started researching and following more triathlon protocols, and that's where I ran into Matt Dixon. We'll get into that mm-hmm. here in a minute, but did you view yourself in that same light as you did a few years prior as a runner, meaning as an experiment of one where you're like, okay, I'm getting into this thing that I've never done. I know how to run. Mm -hmm. I've been doing that for a little while. I feel fairly proficient in that. I learned how to swim while Mm -hmm. I was in grad school, so I know I won't drown. I'll get on the bike and I'm going to figure out how to make these three things work in harmony together and improve in each of those disciplines. Yeah, I would say, funny enough, what I just realized as you're saying that is I almost think there was a subconscious feeling of mine that I couldn't handle running all the time, but I could handle a lot of swimming and a lot of gym work and riding the bike. And I was like, the the subconscious thing was, well, maybe if I'm always doing this stuff and recovering then every time I go run, I'll run really well and I can run hard and I can have good intervals and I can just still kind of be pushing the running through multi-sport training, through gym work. And it's actually something that's kind of full circled and I'm working on that this year, in fact. Before you got into triathlon, Mm -hmm. sorry to cut you off, Mm -hmm. Were you dealing with some running injuries? You had alluded to that earlier, how when you got into this, like you were getting injured, you were having a hard time running a little bit longer. Was it a series of injuries that even got you curious about triathlon in the first place? Yeah, totally, totally. I was, I mean, I was pretty much just that person that would go run Prospect Park as hard as he possibly could, as many laps as he could do. Like a numbskull? (laughs) Like a numbskull. Just tempo run, full gas, three days a week, I had Metallica on in my CD player and I would just go blast until I could had to stop running. And then, yeah, I had like Achilles tendonitis, I had plantar fasciitis, I had you name it, hamstring tendinopathies, knee issues, that's everything. Everything was going wrong. And I wasn't getting faster. I had a couple, you know, the initial spike. Oh, cool, you ran this time, you ran that. And then, and then everything just goes backwards, you know? You didn't even plateau, you just went straight I backwards. Went, I think I went backwards, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it was definitely like, I was like, this isn't right. This doesn't feel good. There's got to be another way. Got to be another way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Matt Dixon. For those of you listening to this who don't know who Matt Dixon is, he is the founder of Purple Patch Fitness. He is one of the most well-known, most well-respected, and most successful coaches in the sport of triathlon. He's coached numerous Kona qualifiers, world champions in half Ironman, Ironman, I think even down at some of the shorter distances. Mm-hmm. He's your boss. My boss. Now he's been your boss for the yep. last several years uh-huh. before you even moved out to California. Yeah. I've heard this story, but tell my listeners mm-hmm. about your initial interaction with Matt Dixon. <laughs> oh, that's a great one. Um, 
Well, I used to watch all his YouTube videos and read his articles in Lava Magazine. <clears throat> and that start, that was kind of when I was going through that injury phase. And I was like, just not doing anything. I was like, this stuff makes sense. He's talking about recovery and paying attention to it. And I was like, wow, this stuff really connects with me. I get it. And my girlfriend at the time knew I was like interested. And she wrote him like an email. I think it was around my birthday. And was like, hey, um, would you be willing to talk to my boyfriend just a little bit about his training? He's He wants to go in triathlons. And eventually he got back to us and was like, yeah, sure. He can pay, he can buy a consult, which I did, or she did. <laughs> and and then I talked to him in Vancouver, like as I went to do a half marathon, I think. So you did it in person? No, it was on the phone. Oh, I see. I think it was you, were tra- you were traveling and yeah, called in. I, I was traveling. It. I think I was in Vancouver and it was like a $200 phone call. <laughs> and I was like, at the end of it, I, I just got a lot of good information. I was writing notes down. And at the end, I was like, you know, if you want anyone to like intern or do any work, I'm available. I'm available. Like, let me know. He's like, oh, really? <laughs> and uh, they, got, they got back to me a few weeks after that. I'm like, oh, so do you really want to do some of this stuff and I was like yeah absolutely and that was 2012 and it's um it's been my life ever since well now you're coaching Mm -hmm. with Purple Patch they're going to be opening a center in San Francisco soon you'll be leading some of the classes there Uh what were you doing initially as an intern Uh, editing like um just kind of checking some documents and checking some of the programs because he he was doing everything by hand like he was delivering all his athletes programs like in PDFs and just very, very difficult. He had a lot of work going on. He was trying to also build a website, push out articles, do videos here and there. And at the same time, try and build something that would be sustainable. So I would just at first just pitch in a few hours here and there, just checking over articles for, for content or maybe writing things here and there. Um, taking some of his quick-handed workouts and and actually making them sentences, you know, like like a doctor would, you know. <laughs> take the shorthand yeah, and make the, it readable. And make it readable. Um, and then just do a little of the, the background work that needed to be done to start building what we have now is, is this unreal thing called the Purple Patch Training Squad, which is like a global online training program. And it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of started over the last two years, but I feel like we've been working on it for eight. And um, we just started doing that stuff. And then the more time I had, the, the more I was able to do. And then eventually, even yeah, When did York, you transition out of the intern role? I, 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 when I stopped managing at Equinox, I was like, I wanted to get more into this team and I was inspired and I was feeling really, really lucky to work with this team. I was like, you know, I want to spend more hours here. Could we make it worth it? And um they did, and they helped me with my life a little bit. I was able to pull back from management, and then I was just training people to make enough to get by. And like and in the gym, as a personal gym, trainer, personal trainer, straight up personal trainer, and teaching some group classes. And uh, and then he started schooling me on coaching, and like here's our style, here's here's a program, like, and he just started giving me a few little athletes here and there, and. Anyone that would join the program, I would call them, get go through like their onboarding information, and just learn learn like 
dozens upon dozens of different people week after week. It was really helpful. Was there a moment that you realized you wanted to be a coach or was it just sort of pushed on you in this way that you just described? Oh, and you're yeah. like, huh, I actually think I like this and let me see where I can take it. A little of both. I mean, training people in the gym, I was just, I was in love with it. Like training people face to face, one on one, I was in love with that. And I would, I, I, I knew right away that that's something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I just love the, the, the personality of like working with a human being. And, and seeing what they struggle with, getting them past it, playing around, experimenting. And then you just, you just know at some point you can't do enough one-on-one work to really make a good living. So I was like, well, how can we do this to, to actually make a sustainable living and not just be limited by how many hours in a day there are, you know? So that's where the coaching started to make a lot of sense. What were some of the biggest impressions that Matt made on you early days in your own trajectory as a coach? Oh, he'll love this if he hears this. Um, this is very, very easy to answer. Turning me from a cheerleader into a coach. And I think it's probably a character thing that I have is that I just, I enjoy people. I love humanity. I love people. And I just want them to be happy. And I just want to cheer them along the way, you know? But a coach can't do that. A coach has to be real and has to has to give a good perspective because sometimes, you know, things... I don't know, how, how else can I say that? Like, you're the boss. You're the leader. And I think back to Pierre, who coached me in hockey. And, and Matt reminds me a lot of him. And they both had that similar thing of like if you're a coach like you are your business that's your job it's your profession and he's gotten me to really learn how to run a crew and how to run an athlete and not just be like side by side like hey great job you nailed that one let's go to tomorrow see how you do it's like give them guidance give them tips give them things they don't know and that's something i'm learning every week he still helps me every single week still learn something new. And he checks me from time to time, like, dude, you're being a little cheerleader. And I'm like, okay, okay, I know. (laughs) Well, let me interrupt you there. Do you think at certain times it's actually in both the coaches and athletes' best interest to be a little bit of a cheerleader? I mean, I think it's appropriate. And it it is my style a little bit, you know? And it's, I I think it, if people are happy, they're going to do well, I think at some level. Um, you know, I want it's 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 sports, right? It's athletics and I want people to love every moment of it, you know? And sometimes I think just being a little positive or reinforcing is great. And I think people could use it cuz maybe they don't get it in their life some other ways, you know? But um I I'm going to I'm going to I'm not sure about that one yet. I'm going to leave that one to the jury. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure. I appreciate that perspective. And I like what you said there at the top of your answer about being a coach and not, not a cheerleader, because I do think, what do you think? I mean, do you, what's the difference, I guess, in your opinion? Well, where I was going with that Mm -hmm. is I do think there are 
some folks out there who fancy themselves as coaches who are not doing all the things that you just described. They're not giving really actionable advice. They're not helping you problem solve. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just they're they're hype man, right? Mm-hmm. They're just they're pumping you up. Um, and sometimes you need to do that, mm-hmm. you know, as a coach, especially when an athlete's down. But it is like a fine line that you're walking between being a cheerleader and being a coach. And I think if you're going to be a coach, there are elements of cheerleading that are appropriate at the right times, mm-hmm. but they're very situational and necessary at a certain time, but it's not all you're doing. If right. that makes, if that makes sense. Um, because you see it. I mean, some people, they do just want that in their life. They just want a cheerleader. But mm-hmm. I think when it comes down to brass tacks and you're an athlete who wants to achieve a certain thing, doesn't mean it can't be fun. Doesn't mean your coach isn't going to encourage you. But to your point, there's a big difference between coaching someone to that and cheerleading to them and just making them feel good about themselves on a given day. Right, right. And it's I I got a lot this learning every day about that honestly it's um and sometimes when you teach group fitness classes like I've done for a long time that's kind of the thing they need is a lot of people just they right. want to show up and they want to feel good but when you're really and coaching they're just, and they're just mm-hmm. there probably for their health mm-hmm. most part mm-hmm. um, or to be in a group environment and I and I think that that is the environment that you want to cultivate yeah ex, ex. and when you're coaching someone and you're the leader. And sometimes you got to play a little both sides of the both sides of the fence. Well, sometimes you got to be the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are coaches out there, especially newer ones, who just don't have the experience. And I think a lot of what you described early on in your career was just from a lack of experience. But it takes experience and confidence to be the bad guy, mm-hmm. and that's not a bad thing. But you know, sometimes you'll have an athlete who wants to do every race under the sun, and you got to be like. Hey, if you just want to participate in all of these things and mm-hmm. do them, great. Knock yourself out. Right. But if you're really serious about setting a personal best at you know this event or for a more competitive athlete, like getting on the podium, then no, you should not do this, this, and this race because they're not helping you get closer to your goal. And you've got right. to be the bad guy in that type of situation. Yeah. Or I'm sure you get this on a weekly basis. I get it from time to time with my athletes. It's like, Hey, my friend so and so, who I don't coach, is doing this workout on Saturday. Is it okay if I jump in and do that? And mm-hmm. in the instance where maybe it's not the exact same workout, but it's going to achieve the same end and that person can take advantage of having someone to do it with, by all means, go for it. Help mm-hmm. each other out. But if they're training for 5K and you're training for marathon and their session is on the polar opposite end of your session, hey, guess what? I'm going to step in there and say, sorry, that's not what you should be doing right now if this is what you want to achieve in your desired event. So no, you're not going to be able, and you got to be the bad guy. And I think there are a lot of coaches, especially newer coaches who don't have the confidence to do that because they don't want to upset the athlete. Right. Um, (laughs) And what I've found in the 15 years that I've been doing this now, going on 16 years, is that more often than not, they're going to respect you for it. They're not mm-hmm. going to be mad at it. They're going to be like, no, this coach has yep. my best interest in mind and they're willing to, I mean, the reason I hired them is to some degree, tell me what to do. And mm-hmm. I respect where they're coming from and I'm going to do it. Yeah. 
they got a lot of decisions to make, these people. <laughs> and if they can reduce that by five with their workout, then they're just going to do better, which is great. One more quick break to let you know that this episode is brought to you by the Atlanta Track Club and the AJC Peachtree Road Race. Hey, I know it's only March, but you need to mark your calendars right now because both member and lottery registration for the AJC Peachtree Road Race on July 4th is right around the corner and opens up on March 15th. The Peachtree Road Race is one of America's iconic road races. Move forward with Atlanta and 60,000 other raucous runners as Atlanta Track Club nods to the future of the race. Peachtree is the largest road race in the country and the biggest 10K in the world, and it has something for everyone. It's the only way to celebrate July 4th in America with 200,000 spectators, costumes, music, and the coveted finisher shirt. Again, the race is on July 4th, and this year it falls on a Saturday. Lottery registration opens to the public from March 15th to the 31st, and more information is available at ajc.com slash peachtree. That's ajc.com slash peachtree. The cost is completely reasonable, 38 bucks for Atlanta Track Club members and $42 for non-members who enter through the lottery. My thanks to the Atlanta Track Club and AJC Peachtree Road Race for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Let's go to early days of Purple Patch. You're getting mm-hmm. into coaching now. You've kind of loosened things up at Equinox a bit so that you can do more coaching of triathletes through Purple Patch. Where are you athletically at this time? I know the answer to this because yeah. we've talked about it, but mm-hmm. I know your own interest in triathlon was kicking up. You did some 70.3s. Yes. You became pretty proficient. I think you went, what, like 440 in a 70.3 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Had some good success as an athlete, but it seemed like, I mean, running is obviously a part of triathlon, but you had sort of put this, let's call it singular focus on running or specific interest in Mm -hmm. running sort of on the back burner because you were so immersed in triathlon as as a coach, but also as an athlete. Sure. And it was getting really interesting um, I was really loving it, you know. Went and got the special bike and a nice TT bike, and it, to the to that effect too. I was sort of enjoying the experiment of like, well, I want to coach triathletes. I got to know what they're going through. Yeah, you got to understand. Like, I have to understand that, and um, really interested in. It. I have to be the person that takes on a swim project because I had a running background that couldn't swim for shit. So I had to be the person spending five days a week in the pool. And I just wanted to know what that felt like. And I, it was working. It was really going well. And you were I, seeing the improvements in I your own definitely performance. Seeing great improvements. I was getting in better shape, like getting more competitive. At Olympic races, I had started to do pretty well. I, had, I was trying to break two hours in Olympic race and I got close at like 209 or something. But I just started hitting some walls a little bit and I just the the deep root of my heart was like I want to run so damn much but I know it's not what's going to do me any good and Matt would tell me that over and over and over he's like save the running Mike save the running that can be your weapon if you use it later but you got to be good on the swim you got to be on the bike if I can interrupt you were mm-hmm. you coaching yourself or were you getting some guidance from Matt or how was that working at I the time I was using our program Straight up, I was using the Purple Patch program that we were making for our athletes. 
and I just waited it on swimming and biking. But then I would do what we constantly do. We overtrain and underperform. So I would be a chronic overrunner in training and I would underperform on the course in running. It's like, ah, oh, man, just I just couldn't crack that code. But it was my brain that couldn't be cracked, really. <laughs> How'd you get yourself out of that? <clears throat> I moved here. Um, I, you know... When I moved here and uh, the impetus of some of this stuff is a little bit of a fast forward. I got into a, two like just gnarly bike crashes and um, it impacted my mind a little bit and I started to struggle with it. And, um, and I was just having, and then when I, when I got into the community here, when I moved out here, I was still trying to race. I was still doing St. George. I was still doing like Santa Cruz, the 70.3, any mm-hmm. Olympic race I could do hits, Napa Valley. And I was just loving it and doing decent. Um, and I just couldn't get myself to fall in love with the swim and the bike training. Just couldn't get myself to fall in love with it. And then I got into two accidents that just kind of had a big toll on my brain mentally. And... Just like, you know what? Did you suffer a concussion? Yes. Yeah, I was in ICU for three days. My mom flew across the coast, across I remember, the country. Yeah. Actually, I remember this now. Mm-hmm. That was a mountain biking accident. It was a mountain biking accident. Yeah, because yeah. you were you were really into the mountain biking mm-hmm. when we first met. I remember yeah. that. I was doing Xterra races. I was really into that. Yeah. And um, it's I remember, an interesting I, thing. It's yeah. crazy. I yeah. totally forgot. You yeah. were messed up from that. I was out. Um, my mom and my aunt, actually, they flew overnight across the country from New York. And the first thing I remember waking up in the hospital was seeing my mom. And I was like, holy shit, what happened? Didn't know what happened. And I was in the hospital for like two days. She stayed and helped me. But um, I actually raced St. George later that year. That was in February. And I don't know how the hell I did this. It was stupid, stupid. Um and I went and raced St. George. And I just had a miserable time. I remember that. Yeah. And uh, after that, I just, I was having a hard time getting back into training for that. And I started running. It's like, this is great. The community here just absolutely took me by storm. Like it took me like in, in a very graceful way, like just brought me into it. Um, the SFRC runs, the the groups in Kizar, and um, I just started to really love every second I was spending with that group and you and, and your athletes. It's like, you know what? I actually don't think I want to go back, you know? It was cool from my vantage point to see that excitement building. I totally spaced on that mm-hmm. bike crash. And that was before either one of us lived here in Marin County. <sighs> I and lived then- in Corte Madera. I was like, um, just, I was in Marin, but... A different that was before place. I, I had yeah, moved up here. Yeah, you were here. in the South Bay. Yeah, yep. we were mm-hmm. down in the South Bay at the time. But I remember after we moved up here, and then we ended up only living, I mean, we've since moved again, but mm-hmm. we were only living a couple miles apart at the time. And we were having our Wednesday coaches run, me, you, and Nate yeah. uh, would hit the trails. Uh, eventually, we got to the track and started doing some workouts together. Mm-hmm. And I remember sending texts to you guys saying like, you know, hey, I don't know if you guys want to join me tomorrow. 
uh, for this Wednesday run. Like I can't go for an easy run on the trails. Like I've got to go to the track because I'm training mm-hmm. for the Boston Marathon. And you're like, I'm in. I'll go do it. <laughs> and you would just do whatever my workout was. You yeah. would jump in and do yeah. like some eight hundreds and um, you know Oof. miles or four, whatever I was doing. Mm-hmm. You just did it and were and were eating it up. And I was like, I don't know if he should be doing any of this stuff because he's not training <laughs> for a marathon like I am, but. Heck, he's a coach. He's an exercise physiologist. Yeah. Like he's I, a big boy. Yeah, he's a big boy. He can do he can do whatever <laughs> he wants to do. But it was your excitement that really made an impression on me, and honestly, helped me perform well during a lot of those races that mm-hmm. I was training for because I was surrounding myself with it. Um, and it's cool to continue to to see that build now to the point where. Yeah, you're still coaching triathletes through mm-hmm. Purple Patch. You have your own running pursuits that you're going after, like we had discussed earlier. You are coaching, you know, some runners. You have a group in San Francisco that you started. Doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Ha. Maybe it's been a year, uh, a little over a year. I'm not sure, but you have this group called Nth Degree AC, mm-hmm. and you're got you got like. 50 people at the track on a Tuesday night in San Francisco training together, preparing for races, part of a community. And this all just kind of stemmed from your excitement for the sport. Yeah. I mean, Jesus. I know we just went through a lot there, but take me, take me through that evolution and how it's gotten to this point. I mean, the nth degree, man, they are, that is a that is a novel waiting to be written one day. Um, it's being written and, right now. Yeah, it is. It's being written. Someone pulled up a picture. I think they got a throwback Thursday photograph of like June 2018. It was one of our first like where we really like got together as a group. And it June was maybe, 19? Uh, 18. 18. 18. I was going to say, I thought it yep. was longer than like six months. Okay. Yeah. It's, and um. That is a, that's a great story. I mean, because... How did it start? It started because I was coaching at the track. I, I, since the day I moved here, um, and even back in Brooklyn, I, I had had a group run at a track one way or another. It's been like seven years of that. Um, I did it at a CrossFit gym in Brooklyn for a little while. We would meet in Red Hook. And when I moved here, I kind of jumped in with the Purple Patch group runs that um, one of our ex-athletes is still a great athlete, Laura Sedell. She used to coach it and I would just kind of run or coach and just start to learn it a little bit. And we would just play around with it a lot. It would be Thursdays. It would be a morning run one time. We would move it to the polo fields. We'd move it to the Presidio. It just bounced all over the place. It was hard to get it consistent. And How many people were you getting early uh, on? You know, when Matt started originally, he had a huge group and he had a like, you know, 20 plus, 30 plus people. He was leading it. That was like part of the initial Purple Patch Foundation. Um, when he couldn't do it, it started to fade a little bit. He had some of that, his athletes leading it or just someone just kind of community leader. And when I moved, I started to take over. And um, it was on Thursday. And Thursday, with, with given our schedule that we were giving these athletes, I, I agree now, it was just tough. Like we were giving them 5.30 a.m. swims. We were giving them a hard bike session on Wednesday, a, a run right out of the swim on Thursday morning, and expecting them to show up for a track run 
on Thursday night. It's just too much. It's just too much. And they were just not feeling it. And they were dead. And we could all see that. And I was like, you know, let's try Tuesday. And let's move it to Tuesday. We were having a few people turn out. But then just from the excitement of being around this community, I was getting in a lot of group runs. Um, I've worked with Lou Lemon for a long time. And they'd have a lot of just fun community social events and around running, like going running a cool trail. And me and Alex Ho and Angela Thierry had a great program when I first moved here. We just kind of once a month find a cool trail, go run it, and just hang out afterwards, just enjoy running. And through that, I was meeting some people. And then on Tuesdays, I'm seeing them at the track a lot. And I'm seeing them a bunch. I'm, I'm there coaching like three or four athletes. And I'm starting to see them like, hey, like, what are you guys doing? And they pull out a piece of paper and like, oh, we're doing this workout. I'm like, are you sure? Because you're kind of doing the same thing. They're like, yeah, no, we're just doing this. And I'm like, well, what if you guys, um, if you want, why don't you just jump in with me? I'll coach you guys. And at first, those two people were were Jenny and Armando Torres, um, Jenny Dubman. And we just started to collect people from there. And started out with maybe like a couple people would walk by and be like, what are you guys doing? It looks weird. You're like crawling around on the ground. You're doing these weird skipping drills. Like what's going on? And we were just like like a little amoeba, gain a few people here and there. Scott and Lauren would, would come a lot. Um, a bunch of their friends from other groups like We Run SF or the Concrete Runners, they would just come in and they wouldn't have coaching one-on-one they wouldn't have someone leading a workout um and then they were just like you know i'll do this let's let's i'm here I want every you week anyway might as well every jump week, in i'm here this is helping me because i'm learning how to coach i'm sharpening my skills coaching runners on the track and it's helping them because they're getting more people to run with they're getting some instruction they're getting some technique work and so at one day, we're just we got so many people. We had like 15, 20 people over the summer, and people are coming by, like, well, what what's this group? And no one had an answer. We're like, uh, it's purple patch, it's concrete runners, it's we run, it's Lululemon, it's New Balance. Like, we're all from different places. So we're like, we should just make a name. And and they came up with this great name called the Nth Degree Athletic Club and they threw together a logo and like all of a sudden we had a name and uh now you have a crew now it's now it's developing it sure is and um it's getting powerful and part of the thing is like it is it isn't every athlete's training team you know and it's very inclusive and i love that about it what differentiates it from your typical running club because there are a number of those in San Francisco and throughout the Bay Area. You know? A lot of them have been around for a while. Exactly. I mean, I, I don't, you know, differentiates if is interesting. I, I think we got a lot in common. And I study those other groups and I see what's worked and I see what they do. Um, I think if anything we do a little different, it's probably, even with most of our athletes being endurance runners, we probably do the lower volume, higher intensity type of work, like 
little more work on form, a little more work on physicality, movement training, and um, a lot of them just don't run enough to be able to handle these big, gnarly, nasty workouts, like eight by 800, like miles, miles upon mile repeats. So I get them doing a lot of really fast, really hard work, and they're, they're starting to learn different things about running and how they can run from these workouts that we do. So I think it's a little different in that way, but everything else is similar. You know, will I'll they, steal workouts from you all the time. <laughs> will they all eventually graduate the longer that they've been there and be able to handle some of those higher volume, different intensity type of workouts? Absolutely. It's happening right now. It's happening. Like um, I'll scale the workout usually just like you would or any, any, any track program like I call them the degrees, the first degree, second degree, third degree, and like we'll all get different workouts. And it just keeps happening. The people just getting the, the first degree will get some legit workouts. They'll get some pretty hard ones, some longer, bigger volume workouts. And lately I've just been sending people up to that group more and more and more. And the the third degree, which will be like the scaled back, keeps losing people, you know? And it's just it's brilliant to watch. And over time, I think, you know, we, we had a few people do cross country last year. I want more people to do cross country, um, get into some of these like team oriented races. We got a group doing the speed project. Uh, it's, it's really cool. Well, it's cool to see in San Francisco because as I'd mentioned a few minutes ago, there are a number of great clubs here mm-hmm. in the area throughout the Bay, West Valley Track Club, Impala's, Strawberry Hill, like mm-hmm. a lot of them have been around here forever and have had a lot of success, but it's cool to see some new life come in. And we're seeing it around the country and throughout the world with the rise of some of these run crews, which don't look like your typical running club form a little more organically such as yours did. Like, hey, what's going on here? Can I join? Oh, can I join? Can I join? And then it's like all of a sudden it's like, you know, a thing. And they're not the people who came from for the most part those high school collegiate backgrounds and they're looking to compete post collegiately, Mm -hmm. they're just scratching a curious itch and learning things about themselves as people and athletes that otherwise wouldn't have been cultivated. And I think that's super cool because Mm -hmm. it had been, I've seen it in New York, in LA you see it in like Boston right now and hadn't seen it here in San Francisco until recently and seen other groups now starting yeah. to pop up, you know, kind of similar to that. And I think that's really healthy. I think it strengthens the community as a whole. It gets more people interested in the competitive side of the sport. Not that competition is your focus, but there is a competitive slant to it. And Mm -hmm. a lot of these folks are being exposed to it for the first time. So it's my long-winded way of saying, I love what you're doing um, and really respect it. It's awesome, man. And like, I just, I feel inspired. Like you watch, we've, we've seen firsthand, like what happens when the running community gets behind itself in a way, like watching people train for the Olympic trials, you know, whether they made it or fell short, how many people got better because of the people that were in front of them, you know? And it is such a powerful thing. It is such a healthy thing for our world and our society to have more people pushing themselves 
in an athletic element. And for us, like we're just getting started. We are the new kids on the block at Kizar. We are the new kids on the block. And I'll tell you, every single time we're working out, every time we're watching the Impalas burn it up around the track. We're watching West Valley burn it up around. And, and I can sense in a lot of the newer athletes that might've been really timid before. They're really timid. They wouldn't want to come jump into a workout when these people are going those speeds. They're they gaining like they confidence. Have a place there now. Yeah, they're gaining confidence. They feel like they have a place. And they're like, you know what? Man, I want to be able to run with those kids one day. You know, they have this, this little, you can see them kind of like looking up through the tops of their eyes a bit like, wow, what are they doing? They look fast. <laughs> how do you hope and I it love that. I evolves love it because it over pushes the next, them. How do you hope mm. nth degree evolves over the next few years? Boy, good golly, it's evolving without me even knowing what's going on now. <laughs> like Jenny and Mondo are doing some awesome things. They're helping me, you know, they're, they're taking on so much ownership and we're having captains kind of bubble up from within the ranks of people like um, one of our athletes, Minju, who lives in the, the Residio area, can lead a long run on Saturday. Like I want more time of our athletes to spend with each other. I want them to have a long run in the city, like through the beautiful hills and trails. Um, I want us to have events. I want us to show up as a team. And, you know, there's there's definitely the side of that, which is going to require a little more, you know, structure, so to speak. We'll have to get to that point as some, because if, if we get more structure, they'll be able to do more things. They'll have more opportunities. You know, we're working out at a gym now, um, so I just want them to have more opportunities to show up to each run and each session, each race, just at, an, at a new degree, at a new level of their own athletics. Reminds me of my college cross-country and track experience, which yeah. I loved and had a profound impact on my life. So I love that you've created this opportunity for folks, maybe who had that in college and they're mm -hmm. a part of this and it feels very familiar to them, but those who didn't have that experience of being part of a team and of being in an environment where others are pushing them and supporting them and showing them what's possible for themselves. I, I love that, man. I'm glad you say it because a, a lot of that can tell. Most of these people have never been on a team and now they are. And I can see it just, they just feel great. They feel confident and I just, I want to see that grow for sure. We've got to wrap up here mm -hmm. in the next few minutes. So I want to hit on a couple more things before we do, but. This could I, go on for a long time. It could friend. go on for a really long time. <laughs> uh, and it'll probably continue at some point this weekend off mic, but this is all the time that we have for this afternoon while we're recording. But you're my friend, your coaching colleague. I look at you, I'm like, Mikey's a coach. Like you just comes very naturally to you, um, not just in what you're doing one-on-one -on -one with your Purple Patch athletes or what you're doing weekly with Nth Degree, but just the way that you carry yourself and you interact with people. And I think people have probably picked up over the course of this conversation, like you just have that in you. And it's not something I can see really stopping or see you going in another direction, but I'd love to get your take on that. Do you see yourself kind of coaching for the long-term in some degree, whether it's full-time or part-time, or do you have other things that potentially interest you? I'd love to get your perspective on that. You'll love my answer. You're going to like it. Because um, I remember riding on a plane. I forget where I was going. 
listening to the Morning Shakeout podcast with Frank Gagliano. And um, one of the things he said was, I forget exactly how it was worded, but he's like, you know, I've never made over Mm $100,000, but I never cared. And I think his exact quote was, I don't give a damn. Exactly. When he said that, I think a tear came to my eye because I was like, dude, this guy's in my head. That's how I feel. Like, you're not in it to get rich, or no, I don't. I don't think I ever will. And if I do, yeah. I think it's like all I want is enough to go on a random to a fun race sometime. Go up to Portland, go to go to Ten Barrel after a race or something. I just want to be able to do that and uh, and just coach until like you've said it before too. It's like if you were 85 you would want to still be coaching people. Yeah. Like, what are you going to, like, I, that's how I feel. I don't want to ever stop doing this. I just want to get better. I want to coach more people. I want to, I want to at some point maybe get to some big stages. Love to feel that, you know? Um, But no, I just, I, I don't, I see coaching as a art form and it's the science gives you the, the tools that you need, but you know, just like we found out you tie two strings together and you pluck it, it reverberates and it makes a noise. It doesn't mean you can play Little Wing on the guitar, you know? So we know what physiology looks like, what blood flow looks like, what muscle function looks like, but taking that and putting it into a program for a human being to me is an art form. And that is that is a infinite pursuit. Well, I believe. And to take that a step further, it's also a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle, yeah. It's we don't have nine to five jobs. You might have practice every week at mm-hmm. six o'clock or whatever it is, but you got athletes kind of calling you all the time. You're writing schedules, you're meeting with people, you know, sort of one on ones. And even when you're not quote unquote working, you're thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you're thinking about how you can improve. I <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've woken up in the middle of the night where I'm like Shit, I got to change that workout for them. <laughs> like tomorrow, or, like you have like, these. You think kind of, of a workout. Yeah. You're like, holy shit, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, but it, it's but happened it's, to me. But it's a lifestyle, mm-hmm. and I mean, people definitely do retire from coaching, but more often than not, they they don't, even if they don't have an official job, because it's just part of your personality, mm-hmm. and it's part of how you live your life. And we talked about this antiquated idea of of retirement. And people were like, well, you're self-employed. Like, how, like, how are you going to retire? I'm like, well, that's my secret. I don't know that I ever will retire. Maybe I'll coach a few less people. Maybe I'll do one podcast a month instead of one podcast a week. Um, and that will that'll evolve in some way. But it's like all of this stuff, like you build a, a life and you build a lifestyle that, you know, you try and make sustainable. And for me, like, you know, that's coaching as well. I enjoy mm-hmm as you just described, the art of taking the science and applying it to someone's program to achieve some kind of result. I enjoy the one-on-one interactions and trying to understand what makes a person tick Mm -hmm. and what I need to do from a programming standpoint, from a you know, psychological standpoint to get them where they want to go. And I've said, I'm like, when I, I mean, when I lose that, I'm probably close to my last day anyway. I I think you're right, man. 
I, I, I admire that. I really do. I really do. Last bit before mm-hmm. we land this plane. What is exciting you in running right now, whether it's Ooh. your own running, the sport itself, or something else that I'm not thinking of entirely? I knew you were going to ask me this. It's um, a common last question. It is on a this great show. last question. Yeah. I tell you what, I, I love, oh my God. I mean, I want to get that, that picture that was taken. I believe one of your athletes was in it at the finish line of CIM and posted in the New York Times of, of the women cheering. For the last girl to cross. She came t- across 244.59. Yeah. yeah, Angela Mull, who I yeah. coach, was at the finish line. She yeah. run 243.18, and you can see her on the left side of that photo, the PRT on the back of her singlet. Yeah, that is like 10 million words in a picture there to me. And uh, yeah. it's like the inclusivity that running is moving towards of if you're trying your hardest, it doesn't matter if what, what your time is, it doesn't matter what pace you run. It doesn't matter. But if you just put it in, if you're just getting after it every day, every time you show up, pushing yourself, bringing others along with you, like that is something I really sense happening. I mean, I think it took a really big step this last year and, you know, having new events and new things to go and do. Like, I mean, I'm stoked about your other podcast person jesse williams and the sound running tour like getting more fun events like that where it's just like people are just going to show up for other athletes to push themselves and then hopefully drag some other people along with them and i think that's just what gets me super excited about the sport i just i see the growth happening year upon year and like this last year has just been epic you know and i hope that continues That's beautiful, man. Thank you for that. Thank you for this conversation and for sitting down with me on the Morning Shakeout podcast. It is the biggest honor that I could receive, man. Thank you so much. All right. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to New Balance and the Atlanta Track Club for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. New Balance is offering a phenomenal deal to Morning Shakeout listeners right now. Use the promo code SHAKEOUT, that's all caps, all one word, when you check out at newbalance.com and save 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. Some restrictions do apply, but that should cover you for most products on their website. This year, July 4th is on a Saturday, which means you can't miss the AJC Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta, Georgia. It's the largest 10K in the world and the biggest road race in the country. Lottery registration opens on March 15th, so mark your calendars today. With 60,000 runners and walkers, 200,000 spectators, costumes, music, and the coveted finisher shirt, this is one bucket list race you can't miss. Lottery registration opens to the public on March 15th. It ends on March 31st, and you can find more information at AJC.com slash Peachtree. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rockstar team here at the Morning Shakeout, John Summerford of BearsRecords.com, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. 
Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance, and Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.